At this year's International Astronautical Congress in Adelaide, Australia, Elon Musk presented an update to SpaceX's designs for a launch vehicle and spaceship capable of delivering significant payload mass beyond Earth orbit. Today, we take a hard look at that spaceship BFR with some special guests from the space podcast community. Coming up on SpexCast. SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. Drew. Howdy. And guest hosts, Brendan. Hi, how are you? And Matt. Hello. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPECS, a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPECS and SPECSCAST at our website, specs.rit.edu. And for even more space discussion, check out our new SPECSCAST blog at blog.specscast.com. Today, we'll be talking about IAC 2017 and SpaceX's BFR. Let us know what other topics you would like us to discuss and respond to this one at RITSpecs on Twitter or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. All right, guys, let's get started. Um, why don't you introduce yourselves, Brennan and Matt? Uh, you're both podcasters um, talking about space. So let's start with you, Brennan. Yeah, I host the Are We There Yet podcast, which is right now a twice-monthly podcast that looks at human space exploration as it comes to uh, putting people on Mars. Yep. And I'm Matt. I'm the co-host of the London-based uh, interplanetary podcast. And we uh, weekly put the ace back into space. I like that. I love both your shows, by the way. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm a fan of yours as well. Thanks. As for us on SpexCast, we students and, and I'm an alumni um, studying all different things, mostly engineering, and are basically just space nerds. So, uh, Brendan, do you have a background in in space? I went to space camp in fifth grade, so that's my only qualification. That definitely counts. That um, definitely counts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I grew up uh, really enjoying space. I live in Florida and watch shuttle launches from my backyard. Um, always wanted to pursue a career in it, but was pretty dumb when it came to the math, um, so I became a writer instead. Uh, so now I'm the space reporter at the local public radio station here in Orlando, and we cover the Space Coast. Um, so yeah, so if you can't do, write. That's what they say. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I think uh, Brendan's infinitely more qualified than I am to talk about space. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I'm just, a, I'm just a, a space nerd. I was a, a sound engineer at one point, as in an acoustician, but I've, uh, I work in the music industry now. Uh, and How'd you get uh, into space? I've gone... Uh, just growing up, listening to uh, Carl Sagan on the television. I mean, I don't know if anyone else. Carl Sagan's Cosmos was by far my favorite program as a kid. And also Arthur C. Clarke and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just a regular space nerd. All right, gotcha. <laughs> um, so we all kept our eyes on the news coming out of the International Astronautical Congress uh, this past week at the end of September. Um, and most of the conversation today is going to talk about Elon's key, Elon Musk's key, keynote speech about BFR. Before we get to SpaceX, um, let's talk about some other 
interesting news items that came out of this Congress. The first is the one I was really excited to see um, is Australia announced that they are going to have their own space agency. So I don't really know what it takes to make a space agency from scratch, but you know, I'm really excited. <laughs> one thing I, I'd like to get your guys' opinion on is like, how do you think this is gonna go? Are they gonna go um, start making satellites, start contracting out the technology, start doing the technology in Australia? Like, do you think there'll be a big player like ESA or do everything themselves like NASA or the Chinese Space Agency? I had to do a double take because when I heard the news, I was like, wait a minute, they don't have a space agency at this point? Um, Australia's been phenomenally helpful with with NASA and with planetary science in, you know, operating deep space networks and communicating with the Apollo missions. Um, I think though they really could take a a huge lead in planetary science. They've got uh, great places for observatories. Um, so I think that's where they're going to go. Um, mind you, 48 hours ago or whatever it was, I thought they had a space agency. So take take my word with a <laughs> grain of salt. But uh, I think that there's there's a huge opportunity for them to jump into planetary sciences. Yeah, it's worth noting that um, that they were the seventh country to ever launch a satellite and this year's their 40th anniversary no 50th anniversary of their satellite launch oh okay and and the uh, and the british uh flights used to fly out of woomera in australia uh but uh, the uk have only had a space agency since 2010 so i don't know whether a, sp a sort of national space agency doesn't necessarily preclude you from being involved in a larger space agency so for example the uk is obviously part of esa and um but we've still got a UK space agency that hasn't really done much as far as you can see uh, since 2010, other than the fact that we've, we're sort of looking at um, opening a, uh, a, a launch facility in this country. Oh, wow. So I, I wonder if um, having a space agency is just tapping into federal funding? Yep. Um, Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so the other launches, like out of the UK and Australia, were privately funded, or like they just didn't use federal funding? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the UK space uh, sector, which is pretty big, um, is obviously private satellite-making companies like SSL and all that. Uh, not SSL, Surrey Satellites and etc. Um, but yeah, I, d I, d I don't really know the difference. What, why, you know, what impact the UK Space Agency has had as opposed to before so yeah i'm certainly mm -hmm. not an expert um one other thing that that comes to mind is uh rocket lab in new zealand um next door neighbor do you think that they'll work with australia um like maybe they can share a launch facility or i guess australia might already have some um do you think there's going to be any partnership going on there that's that would that's an interesting question because Rocket Labs down in New Zealand still flies under FAA license, so I'm not sure how what a partnership would be with a national space agency with Australia if that kind of gets rid of some red tape for Rocket Labs, possibly, um, or how that whole legal thing works. The the legality of, of launches is pretty interesting to look into, um, but that that's definitely an interesting question that that a company like Rocket Labs or, or somebody might want to license under Australia or, or something like that. Are there any other major 
launch facilities in the southern hemisphere? French Guiana, but that's on the equator. And then, you know, I, we can look at, I think all of China's launch pads are in the northern hemisphere. And that doesn't mean there aren't any rocket launches in the southern hemisphere. Uh, but for like human human or exploration-based spaceflight, you know, peaceful spaceflight, uh, I don't think any countries below the uh, equator have active launch pads. All right, let's move on to another piece of news. Uh, Drew, do you want to introduce this one? Yeah, so we uh, found out that NASA and Roscosmos both uh, put out a joint statement supporting the exploration or the further development of some sort of uh, the New Space Gateway, the the moon-orbiting station uh, that would then be a launching point for other missions into deep space, into towards Mars or the rest of the solar system. We should make the point that they have not said that they are both supporting it. We're definitely going forward, and we've made an agreement. They both just say that they will be they will be looking to assign resources into further developing the idea, the concept of this orbiting this lunar post. Yeah, and as awesome as that would be to have like a joint Roscosmos NASA moon station, a lunar station. Um, like I got super excited. I, I this came out of left field for me. Um, but then especially because some of the headlines I read said they agreed to do this or they will do this, uh, which isn't technically the case. Um, And if you look at history, even things that um, both space agencies have been really, you know, working toward um, for a long time, fall through. I'm actually working on an article to talk about kind of Russia's near-term ambitions in space um, because... I'm, over the past like 15, 20 years, uh, Russia's been trying to modernize their current rocket family, right? You know, they have a stable of very reliable, very cost-effective launch vehicles, uh, which has been the mainstay of their launch industry. Uh, but they haven't been able to kind of get any new technology to really jump forward and secure a new lead. So things like Angarov have hit a lot of development uh, struggles. Uh, they had to move the whole factory across the country for political reasons. Uh, the Federation spacecraft, which went from being kind of an Orion competitor to a Dragon 2 competitor with like supposed propulsion landing, things like that, that's kind of stalled out. And then there were the um, the statements by Roscosmos that uh, when the ISS was going to be decommissioned, whether that's in 2024 or 2028, that the Russian segment would detach and would become the framework for a new Russian station. Uh, so you have all these these announcements uh, that come out of the Russian space industry, and you really have to connotate them with several grains of salt uh, because Russia, I think, is probably the most pragmatic and practical national-based uh, space uh, company or organization in that they know what works, they know what benefits them directly and indirectly, um, and they keep going through that, right? They supply engines to ULA and by default the U.S. They supply rides to U.S. astronauts uh, with the partnership with ISS. You know, they have the Russian segment and they use proton launches to build it. Uh, but NASA supplies a large amount of the funding uh, to support the station uh, that takes a huge amount of pressure off of, of ILS. And so, 
you know, Ru- Russia does what's really in their best interest. And if they see that, like, if, if NASA is fully committed to building a deep space gateway, then it really behooves them to have a Russian module and to have shared Russian flights on, or shared Russian astronaut seats on Orion. Uh, because it doesn't look like Russia is going to have that capability anytime soon. Uh, but until, you know, Deep Space Gateway becomes a very serious project, um, I don't see any really potential partnership uh, solidifying, right? Now, it's worth noting that this is, if you look at the political context of what's going on, this is all kind of NASA pivoting towards looking at the moon. And we can talk about this when, when we get into Elon's um, presentation, but you're starting to see all of these players start pivoting towards the moon. And that's because we've seen under this U.S. presidential administration, all eyes are on the moon. So you've got Mike Pen- or Vice President Pence, who was here at the Kennedy Space Center earlier this summer talking about putting people on the moon. You have the new National Space Council, with chaired by or, uh, Executive Director Scott Pace, who's looking at the moon. Um, Republicans like the moon. <laughs> Democrats like asteroids. And you're seeing this, this shift from the asteroid redirect mission under Obama to um, this more moon-based stuff. So when you look at all these announcements put into that political context that NASA is pivoting itself towards the moon, and eventually its new head, Jim Bridenstine, he's a moon guy, the vice president's a moon guy, Scott Pace is a moon guy. You're seeing all these pieces fall into play um, to kind of grab a a piece of that budget pie and head back to the moon. That being said, uh, no funding requests have been made for the Deep Space Gateway. Zero. (laughs) So this is still in the very early development stages. And although this, this joint statement between NASA and Russia is not that significant. It's still, it points us towards the moon. And in the political climate, this is is a significant statement where it kind of shows that space transcends uh, any sort of political happenings down here on Earth. So I, I think it was significant in the sense that we don't really have a very good political relationship with Russia right now, but our space counterparts are able to come together and make something like this happen. Yeah, it gives me the warm fuzzies to think that that's what the... International Astronautical Federation, which puts on the IAC, was built upon in 1954 or whatever it was. It's worth noting as well that that Russia only have an economy that's actually barely bigger than Italy's. So I just it, <laughs> they've got to be looking at ways of trying to keep their uh, entire space industry going because it must be very, 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 very tight for them. Pivoting toward the moon, though, uh, I'm glad we bring that up because there's been a significant, um, you know, decline in the zeal for Mars, like journey to Mars, even um, looking forward um, for other well-known missions that it like looking at Mars. I haven't heard a lot from Mars 2020 um, and stuff. It's all it's all shifting toward the moon. Yeah. You know, if you had watched the uh, new NASA astronaut class announcement there was not a single mention of journey to mars so within nasa journey to mars as a branding or advertising tactic is dead uh and there i don't think there was a single mention of mars during vice president pence's talk or during the uh intro nasa administrators talk uh and theoretically if nasa the nasa's timelines hold uh for missions to mars in the 2030s 2040s these astronauts would be the ones that would be slated to go. 
Um, so it's it's very telling that there's you know there's been a shift, and you know we've heard you know in January we're hearing rumors about a shift before the inauguration, and I think even in the last episode in our predictions episode we covered all the different you know breadcrumbs that got us to this point, um, and you know as we dive into Elon's talk. I, you know, the moon, a moon base or operations around the moon has definitely become a very hot topic for uh, any organization or company seeking federal funding. Yeah, I mean, NASA pretty much admitted they, they couldn't afford to land on Mars. You know, they just said, you know, we can get to Mars, but we can't afford to land. I mean, that was a sort of statement made by, I can't remember who said it, but it was it was pretty high up. So they've kind of basically said we can't do it, and and that's and that's in the in the 40s. So yeah, there are also these images that came out recently of Lockheed Martin's Mars Base Camp mission or program, which is this Mars orbiter and then these landers that are reminiscent of the shuttle. They they glide into the surface and then land. It's this new mission or this new proposal that Lockheed has put out, um, the the images were really cool looking. There's actually a lot of really interesting stuff about this talk. So for reference, um, for people who haven't seen the actual slides, uh, just imagine the Martian. So you have a very, very large uh, space-borne ship that doesn't go to Mars. And then you have these like mini shuttles. Um, so when you compare it to something like BFR, 2016 versus BFR 2017, this is a very small uh, spacecraft. It's supposed to take you know three to four people down to the lunar sur- or the Martian surface. Um, and in some of their technical slides, Lockheed Martin is actually kind of trying to show an upgrade path where they've spent all this money uh, developing Orion and also the interim cryogenic upper stage. Uh, and they want to be able to take Technology that was built for Orion, right, which is a capsule form factor, and kind of extend that outer mold line into a, you know, air, like a aerodynamic shuttle body, uh, and then take those uh, upper stages and stretch that out into the internal tanks. Um, so they're trying to propose that it's not going to be a uh, monolithic development effort like Orion, Orion was, where they went from scratch. Um, and the whole idea, it's kind of... Um, very interesting. It serves a opposition class mission, where you spend six months getting to Mars, and you have to sp- you only spend roughly thirty days on Mars, and then you have to take a year and a half home. And so this shuttle is designed to be not only the landing vehicle, but also the entire base camp, right? So you have you know a main cabin, you have a laboratory, you have like a dormitory area, a kitchen, things like that, all integrated into the vehicle. Um, and so the whole idea is that this solves the last missing piece uh, in a potential Mars architecture, right? When we've been getting SLS and Orion, uh, this is the journey to Mars, this is the shift to Mars. Uh, that's great. It can get us to an area around Mars, which NASA is very fond of saying, missions around the area of Mars. Uh, but you need a lander. You need a vehicle that can take the aerodynamic forces, that can land propulsively, to land on Mars. And so this is, you know, it's a semi-serious design. Obviously, it's not an actual contract or a development program, but, you know, it is, here is a potential design that, you know, we can use already invested technology to kind of move things around quickly. Uh, and I think that gives NASA, I, th- I think at the bottom line, it gives NASA more options 
right? When if, if NASA changes direction in two years or four years or eight years, you know, they have the option to, it's like, okay, we have this design. If we need to actually get a lander to put people on Mars, um, they have that option. It's like a menu that Lockheed Martin are coming up for for NASA then, isn't it? It's, 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 it's not a, because presumably it would be NASA that would be paying for the, that would actually be paying for the trip to Mars and Lockheed Martin are just saying we've got the technology to do it. Is that correct? Am I? It, it falls in line with another announcement that um, Lockheed released where they have um, common buses for satellites as well. So like different sizes where, um, you know, if you were, if you wanted to do science or some sort of mission to space, you could choose from the menu. So it sounds like that's in line uh, with the approach that they're taking. And Lockheed's working on some actual prototypes, not for the, the Mars lander here, but the Deep Space Gateway. Um, they're working on a habitat prototype here at Kennedy Space Center, um, along with, I think, five other um, contractors got a Boeing, Sierra Nevada, and whatnot. But they're using an old, um, one of the cargo containers from the shuttle mission. Um, they're actually turning it into this, this habitat. So Lockheed's kind of ahead of the game in actually developing some physical prototypes when it comes to this deep space network slash um, Mars orbiter, their Mars base camp, yes. and, and lander. And their, you know, child company ULA uh, has the ACES reusable upper stage. Like, you know, they definitely put in a good amount of R&D into, you know, future developments. Well, at this point, we've talked about satellites in the moon and Mars and further exploration. So I think it's time that we get to the keynote of IAC. At this point, SpaceX will just go get to Mars by the time we're done talking. I think that's the longest time we've talked about Mars without talking about SpaceX. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Elon's talk, update on making humans multi-planet species, um, update to ITS, or as it's now, they've reverted the name. We make fun of SpaceX in their naming conventions. This time they've gone backwards uh, and reverted the name from ITS to BFR, which stands for Big effing rocket or big falcon rocket if you want to be um you know uh safe for public radio <laughs> um <laughs> i thought it was cool <laughs> what are your first reactions tj we, you and you and i watched this together uh we did watch it and you were geeking out the whole time i couldn't have had more of a positive reaction right because you know if you look at your know, plans to go beyond earth orbit or especially plans to go to Mars, they've always been 20 years away. Right now they're 25 years away, and NASA doesn't want to commit to a, an actual landing. Uh, and they've been like that for 50 years, right? There are there are people that worked on the Apollo program that, like, all right, you know, I'm, we're going to get to Mars before the time I retire, uh, and their children are about to retire before NASA gets uh, humans to Mars. Uh, so anytime you hear a timeline of, no, we're, we're not going to take 20 years or 25 years. We're going to take 10 years. And I think the b big announcement here was uh, it's not 10 years. It's five years for large amounts of cargo and seven years for humans, um, which, again, are very ambitious timelines. And if we look at, you know, the SpaceX Falcon Heavy level, uh, SpaceX doesn't hit timelines very well. Um, but when you hear that rhetoric of, you know, here are all the milestones from to get from where we are to get to where we want to be. And here's the time we think they're going to take. And like 
we've already started executing on the first set of milestones. Uh, you know, that's very, very exciting. You know, that's when we were, we, we just talked about NASA's Deep Space Gateway and, you know, they, they have not fully committed to it, right? They have a plan, they're doing some development work, but they haven't committed to it. Uh, and so we have to wait and see, like, are they going to do it? Like, is this going to become the next, you know, ISS? Uh, and, it, you know, there's, I don't think there's any other takeaway you can take from this talk other than that SpaceX is going all in with BFR. So I kind of want to respond to your comments about the timeline. Yes, it's ambitious, but I think comparing it to Falcon Heavy is a red herring. I don't know if that's the right logical fallacy, but I don't think it's the right way to look at it. Um, I think Falcon Heavy was an idea that everyone thought was going to be simple and wasn't because they had to rework things they already made that weren't intended to work that way. You know, when they built the first Falcon 9, I'm not sure if they built it so that it could be turned into Falcon Heavy. Um, and so they had to find a lot of that out the hard way. I think looking at the timelines, you know, maybe this isn't a great way to look at it, but I think we should focus on how their progress has been coming out with Crew Dragon. Um, and I say that I don't know if that's the right way because Crew Dragon is part is funded by um, commercial crew. So they've got uh, federal funding backing and stuff. And BFR is most likely going to be entirely internally funded through internal R&D. But that said, Crew Dragon has a lot of new tech. It's sort of based on the experience of the old Dragon. Um, I'm not sure how much is actually taken from the old Dragon designs. Um, but similarly, the BFR rocket is the scaled up vision of a Falcon 9. Um, the same launch boost back it has grid fins right um and um propulsive landing all this stuff so it's building on the experience but it's still completely new and they can build it entirely for the vision they have and they don't have to rework things like they did for falcon heavy so i think it'll be a lot smoother than falcon heavy but um you're definitely right i think it's i gotta temper my expectations after um cutting red dragon um happened because that was like oh man we're gonna go back to mars in five years or two years or whatever it was uh but that's another case of them you know pushing the limits of what they designed a vehicle for and if they designed a vehicle for the purpose of beyond earth orbit maybe we can expect uh a smoother development path Every speech, essentially, that Elon Musk gives is incredibly inspirational. He may not be the best public speaker. He's great at giving presentations that then birth memes and GIFs. But this, like, when you look at his presentations and you listen to what he says and you see his passion for it, it's so hard not to get caught up in this idea that this is going to happen. This is going to happen soon. I think that this timeline is aggressive. It's doable with the right resources and the commitment, but I think that we have to be optimistic, but very cautiously optimistic about this uh, this timeline. Yeah, the thing that I like about timelines like this is that I think you you nailed it you nailed it earlier on. If you say twenty years time to do a project, it never gets done. And Robert Zubrin mentioned this on on our show a couple of weeks ago was that. Um, if uh, John F. Kennedy had said, right, we'll get to the moon 
uh, in 20 years or 30 years, we still wouldn't have gone. You know, it's the fact that they've said, right, this is the time limit. We've just got to do it in this. And you, you do push ahead. And with this kind of scaled down version of it, it does. It's only a little bit bigger than the, the Apollo and the Saturn V uh, missions. So it's, it's technically feasible. It looks technically feasible. And I think pushing for a 10-year timeline, I, I think, is doable. But I've, I've got re- other reservations about other things. My job as a journalist is to be cynical. Um, and I've been burned by Elon before <laughs> with, with timelines uh, consistently. Um, so I, I walk into this thinking, you know, this will never happen. Um, but then I also look back and see what SpaceX has done in such a small amount of time and, and the amount of kind of breakthrough technology that they've been able to put on the market and use and demonstrate um, is incredible. And I don't think that there's anyone out there that can do it faster than SpaceX can. So I think the biggest thing, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this uh, in a bit, is going to be how do you pay for this? They have the mm-hmm. engineering resources, they have the vision for it, but it's going to cost a effing lot of money to use the BFR reference. It's going to cost a lot of money to develop a brand new system like this that is huge. It's absolutely huge and, and it'll be incredible to see it work. I think if anyone can do it, it's going to be SpaceX, but it's just going to be getting that cash to make it happen. Yeah, I definitely have some thoughts about that, uh, but we'll save that for a little bit later. First, let's talk about the vehicle's design and some changes since the interplanetary transport system unveil. So, TJ, what are the specifications of BFR? Yeah, we got some some good stats uh, on the ship. Uh, so it is a nine meter scale down version of ITS, right? That was we had a tweet that kind of almost confirmed that for real. Uh, pretty much every explanation. Uh, or a prediction would had it at nine meters. However, there's a couple key differences. One, I think the most important is that Raptor, I don't want to say Raptor development has stalled, but we saw the subscale Raptor last year, and it looks like SpaceX has decided to keep it at subscale. And so when we were talking about, oh, they're going to delete uh, the outer ring of engines, go from 42 to 21, uh, and have them be full-scale uh, Raptors, they're actually going to have 31 Raptor engines, but they're going to be less have less thrust per engine. Uh, so that's you know pretty surprising. However, during the talk, Elon uh, you know gave out some specific numbers uh, for those that love rocket engines like I do. Um, you know the sea level engines have a thrust of 1,700 kilonewtons, sea level ISP of 330 seconds, and a vacuum ISP of 356 seconds. Uh, with a chamber pressure of 250 bar. And so that differs from the announced Raptor in that they were aiming for 300 bar um, and roughly around 3,000 kilonewtons, right? So this is a little less than half, uh, half scale. However, uh, Elon in this talk mentioned that they're still going to try to operate this engine to some of their original ideas, which means... Uh, I think one of the most exciting things about this is that the BFR that first flies uh, is not going to be the same as the BFR that flies five years later. Uh, we're going to get more performance, and those payload numbers we're seeing with 150 metric tons to low Earth orbit, though with refueling all the way to Mars, those can increase, uh, which I think is really, really exciting. 
uh, they have some some headroom in the design. Um, also, I think uh, another key change is that the spaceship is now a little bit longer relative to the booster, uh, and also the fact that um, it has delta wings, which uh, I am no fan of delta wings. Many times in the show, uh, when we talk about wings, people always suggest wings for reusability. Uh, I shoot them down because wings don't help you when you land on a place with not a lot of atmosphere. Uh, and Elon, is, in his talk, explicitly mentioned this, is like, we, we unfortunately, we have to put delta wings on this. Uh, because the vehicle is so much longer, uh, they need to shift the center of pressure back farther uh, so that we, they have stability when they're re-entering Earth's atmosphere and Mars's atmosphere. Uh, and so for any moon-based applications, these delta wings are kind of dead weight, um, but they went for, they, one of the key design principles for this was this one design um, with some minor adjustments to the front section, the cargo section, uh, will do every mission. It'll do low Earth orbit, it'll do moon, it'll do Mars. Uh, and that means those delta wings are here to stay. Uh, and... You know, if you squint hard enough, uh, it's it's not that hard to see uh, a, a space shuttle with the orange external tank built into the body. Uh, if you squint hard enough, dude, like that was the that was my first thought. Are you kidding me? That was my first thought, especially with the delta wings and with all the heat shield tiles underneath. Not and, tiles, Pika X, Pika X. Uh, but. You know that was that was a, my first thought. It, it's you take all the shuttle parts and kind of squeeze them and morph them and you know play with the design until it all fits in a single tube. Did you, did you have more? No, I mean you know that it's it's. I'm not going to say that this design was influenced by the shuttle, right? It it operates on a lot of different principles, but it's uh, you know d looks very similar to the shuttle, and it looks as if the ITS spaceship that we saw. Is getting closer to what the shuttle was um and so we'll we'll see how that pans out because yeah it seems to carry on the dream um f for the shuttle like what people thought the shuttle could accomplish um that at least for me when i was growing up and uh, you know bear in mind i grew up in the 90s and 2000s that like that was sort of the end of the shuttle days but I always imagine the shuttle would go beyond Earth orbit or at least toward the moon or something and like be able to take off like a rocket land like a plane type of thing. It, it's um, its actual emission scope was much more limited than I thought it would be. And it seems like this is the evolution of that. Um, I also think that as I was watching this talk and especially when they showed a slide that compared uh, BFR to SpaceX's other vehicles, it's exactly the same path that I take in career mode in Kerbal Space Program. You start with Falcon 1, it's a small rocket until you get enough money and then you just like scale it up hugely and start doing manned missions. Then you get lazy and just strap three together and then you take the time and build it right and then build one ship that does everything. That's exactly what I do in Kerbal Space Program. Um, so I don't know if that's, you know, how <laughs> where the the thought path goes from Kerbal Space Program to real life or vice versa. Uh, but I, I thought it was funny. Uh, SpaceX's long-term strategy revealed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when, do they, when do they start modding? That's my question. So, uh, Matt, what were your first reactions to, to this presentation? Um, 
mainly my first reaction was that that that, that it hasn't addressed my like my my biggest issue with that with the, with the the whole endeavor for me is the is the cost on on the on the humans themselves and it barely gets mentioned in any of these talks is is the is the psychological um uh, mm -hmm. part of the human <laughs> spaceflight thing you know you can you can say you can move 200 people to mars but that they really haven't done the work that the, the work's just not there for for just to know exactly what's going to happen there and and i just i just think we're a long way away from it as well it, even training people up to be able to 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 do that mission and it, and it and it it's just blatant it's just completely missing from the talk and it was mm -hmm. missing from the talk the time before as well yeah having 100 seats on a ship to mars is not the same as bringing 100 people to mars yeah yeah and there there was a little bit of talk um last you know last uh, IAC when we had a much Oh, pretty large spaceship. You know, they talked about restaurants and common areas and like being like a cruise ship to Mars. Uh, and this one, you know, it is a little bit smaller, but uh, as Elon mentioned, the internal volume is the size of an A380, right? Which is the largest commercial plane we have flying. And so that can take 300 to 500 people for 17 hours. Uh, if you scale that down to 100 people, you know, there's a lot more room. I still don't know if I would want to be on an A380, even in first class, for, what, six months? <laughs> Three to six months, yeah. Yeah, but triple your room and you're going to Mars? Imagine the smell, dude. Yeah, it's exactly what I was thinking this morning, that, that in a 10-hour flight, because I've done on the A380 from uh, LA back to London, and I, w I was pretty miserable, like, about two hours in. <laughs> it's just and that's without you know that's without all the, the the g's that i had to suffer on the on the way up and then and then weightlessness all on the way you know the, 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 just the physiological let alone the psychological aspect of that of that six month journey to mars really hasn't been addressed with the short timeline that spacex has proposed maybe they need to be thinking about this now but if if it were say a nasa mission and then we're 20 years off, is this something that needs, is the human aspect, does this need to be looked at immediately, or is it something that can be looked at closer towards once the technology starts to exist? Well, even if it's not a NASA mission, I, I, I would assume that NASA would care about humans going into space, whether or not they're astronauts or private um, citizens or passengers aboard BFR. I, I do not have any doubts that NASA, that SpaceX would consult NASA. I just don't, I'm not clear on the, like if NASA has requirements um, besides safety um, on ascent and re-entry. Are, are there, uh, NASA still trying to figure out that for themselves? Yeah, I, I think, I think Matt hit it right on the head as to my concerns with that talk too, is when you think about long duration space flight missions, when you think about the you know, year in space on the ISS, or you think about, you think about Peggy Whitson, um, you know, breaking records in space. Those people are the cream of the crop. They're the best of the best that have been selected and screened for years, psychologically, physically, to make sure that they can handle the stress of being in space and the isolation of being on the International Space Station. And then when you talk about taking just regular people and putting them on Mars, after the six-month journey and they might not be coming back, how do you 
how do you even begin to think about what's the application process? How do you pick people for that? It didn't seem it doesn't seem like that is in the plan for Elon. It's whoever wants to go can go, and that's probably not the best idea. Yeah, you you make a good point. Um, so. Um, one other thing that came uh, right at the very end as kind of the finale of Elon's speech was um, one application for BFR um, would be suborbital Earth-to-Earth flights. So um, across the Earth, uh, you'd take a rocket up, um, it would propulsively land on a launch pad somewhere else, and um, the the terminology they used or the phrasing they used was most places in under 30 minutes anywhere on earth in under an hour um, and i'm sure the vehicle is capable but does that mean you have to pass a, a physical exam in order to be a passenger uh, it's like when you're going through airport security that's just security you can't bring this you can't bring that but it doesn't matter if you know how old you are if you're um, pregnant if you have a physical disability you can still fly in a plane so there was some discussion about this um, and you know we experience g-forces when we drive cars when we fly planes and while not in that spa- many, it's, so this is not a very like this is a roller coaster like it's they're keeping it to two or three g's right like this is a you know a fun roller coaster for anywhere from you know two to two to eight minutes on both ends okay question right? question so you have all these engines and they just don't thr- since they don't have to go as far they don't throttle it up as much no so there's not they're not going that far it's that they throttle them down because they're not going for max efficiency, right? You have so much extra delta V and you're only going on a suborbital trajectory that you can afford to have lower thrust and higher gravity losses on the uh, ascent phase, right? And if you actually look at the numbers, like the new BFR is not going to be a very quick vehicle off the pad. It's got a thrust away ratio of about 1.2. So it's going to very slowly crawl up and and get going uh and the raptors can throttle down to 20 percent um so there is a lot of uh a lot of room to kind of manage acceleration uh and so you know in elon's talk they mentioned there and you know they want to keep it between two and three g's for for uh takeoff and re-entry landing and you know i was reading uh i'm going to call call out this article on the verge uh they were talking about the feasibility of this point-to-point Earth system, uh, and then they had a, uh, an expert, uh, Brian Whedon, who's the director of program planning at the Secure World Foundation, uh, who says that the G-forces of both launch and ranching would kill people. Uh, and he says what? that he doesn't have the numbers right in front of me, but it's a lot more than the G-forces an astronaut than we see today going up into space, um, which is just flat out wrong. Uh, all signs point to this being uh, well within what astronauts on Soyuz or even on Crew Dragon when they launch are going to experience uh, and not going to be in any way dangerous to a person. And there is there Maybe. is someone working on putting regular people on the suborbital trajectories. Do you think that there might be some yeah. information sharing between Blue Origin and SpaceX when it comes to that? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like each other at all. But it, it'll be interesting to see how, because that's been a concern and something I've been looking into is, you know, how do you regulate who gets to go on to these Blue Origin um, New Shepard flights? Um, it, it seems to me, and I'm, I'm not an expert, that they would be feeling pretty much the same G-forces as these point-to-point systems would. Another key aspect, though, is that 
for reentry currently with a dragon or with Soyuz, things like that, those are using pure, purely aerodynamic braking. Uh, and so at that point, you can experience some higher G-forces. Uh, and you can kind of mitigate that by using the capsules, the lifting body. But for these rockets that are entering engine first, uh, we see that with Falcon 9. It has a, an entry burn that slows it down so it's not getting the maximum amount of uh, aerodynamic forces, and then a landing burn. And so it is slowing down its velocity with its engines, so it's not going to be hitting those peak uh, Gs that a capsule would. Uh, because the, you know the structures can't take it, the engines can't take it. Yeah, I th I, th I would have thought that the killer would have been the uh, safety aspect of it. I mean, it, if you look at if he got his BFR as safe as it possibly could be, I would hazard a guess that it would still be three orders of magnitude less safe than say a Boeing 747, and and that <laughs> that is quite significant. In other words, you would. It would just seem too unsafe. I mean, you only had to look at what happened to Concorde. As soon as Concorde uh, crashed and w once, that was it. It was game over for it. It was, n it was no longer a viable uh, form of transport. How valid is the argument that cars are unsafe? You know, cars are normalized. People get in accidents, fatal accidents, yeah, a, hundreds of thousands of times per a, year. A car is but, way, way, way more dangerous than a plane. But is that worth... Is that a, a, a valid comparison um, or is that just like a red herring I hate when people ha present an argument and then do the thing where they say something sort of inflammatory like that like oh well cars are more dangerous and don't have the consider the whole picture I think there. It, I think that is a red herring because if, if you think that um, cars are just such a fact of everyday life plus you you kind of feel as though you're in control of the car yourself. So there's a there's a you you are personally in control of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas sitting as 400 passengers on something and blowing up is is just seems much more of an international and tragic event than than a you know a car crash that kills six people. It, mm -hmm. However, that is tragic. But I, I think that they're they're not equivalents purely because of the uh, just the fact that. It, to live without cars would be pretty much impossible in the in the in the modern world for a lot of people. So I think, whereas international travel, it's really the fact that the average person is driving the car with minimal training, and it's people that are unsafe, not the car per se. So maybe with autonomous vehicles, we'll see that planes are less safe than cars. But now you know, that's building off that. In the future. Uh, just to go back to the Verge article because this this made me very frustrated. Uh, they referenced that after the Concorde. Uh, had a safety accident. Uh, both the uh, International Space University at Strasbourg and the U.S. Department of Transportation uh, did their assessment of point-to-point high-speed travel, and they talk about that one of the key the key no-go points for something like BFR point-to-point uh, -point travel on Earth is uh, on the on the pilots. Uh, if the pilot would have to deal with activities ranging from direct control of the vehicle to oversight and social awareness to planning. There's probably and that, not going to be a pilot. And exactly. The, 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 a human pilot uh, obviously can't do this. We see this with Falcon 9, right? A human, there's no way a human pilot can react fast enough, so they have to pass it over to computers. A dragon won't, a true dragon won't even have a, a direct, con it won't need direct control exactly. from a, an astronaut. And so if you go to, you know, what Drew just said, right, 
I think one of the reasons that we're so comfortable uh, assuming the risk of cars is that it's like, oh, it's not me. Like I, I, the amount of attention I put into it, you know, will make sure that I don't get into an accident. Uh, and if we all had autonomous cars, the, you know, potential fatalities of cars would go way down, something closer to airlines. Airlines, you know, a lot of the current transportation system is automated, but they're still very, very, very well-trained pilots uh, that do some of the critical cat tasks. Uh, and with this point-to-point -point system, you know, SpaceX is, you know, with the design of Crew Dragon, humans, humans are passengers. There, you know, there is very limited direct control input in that capsule design. And with something like BFR, if you're launching, you know, people on the other side of the world, you're going to have the computer do it. And I think, you know, Matt, as you brought up, there's, it might be no way that a BFR-like vehicle can match the safety record of an airplane, right? Because it's pushing the boundaries of engineering. I think that's a, an operational issue, uh, not a like inherent technical issue. In that, you know, their their whole goal is to make these vehicles way more reliable than they currently are. Uh, learn how to optimize them for a thousand or ten thousand reuses, like an airplane, uh, and Safety comes through experience and better engineering. I'm going to feed my cat. I'll be right back. <laughs> well said, Phil. Um, I, would, uh, I would like to just make the point that um, we started this conversation of, is this even feasible with the health and safety aspect of it? And Phil asked, you know, will people who are pregnant be able to do this when they can fly on a plane? Well, you still have to, in many situations you'll have medical issues that you'll need to consult your doctor before you can fly, and there are people who can't fly on planes because of some external factor. So it may get to the point where this can feasibly be done, uh, this point-to-point -point with BFR or a similar rocket, um, but what about just using it for uh, non-living cargo that we can transport around the world in 30 minutes because there may still be an industry for that. Yeah, I could see, you know, just looking at, at hurricane relief, you know, being able to move one of these platforms close to an island that needs some supplies and you're able to get, you know, tons and tons of supplies out there. Um, I think that might be feasible. I think there's a reason why this was put at the end of the keynote is I think if Elon is banking on this to be the moneymaker for this system, then the system is doomed. Um, between all of the regulatory red tape that he would have to go through, selling, I mean, just look at selling autonomous cars to the general public. That has been a challenge in itself. There's still tons of pushback on that. I couldn't imagine that this would be a breeze through the, you know, regulators to get a system like this up and running. And if he's got this, this accelerated timeline, it's not going to work. So I think that this is one of those Wade pipe dream kind of things for Elon. We don't need this to actually fund the system. And if he does, I think that this thing doesn't leave the ground. The hyperloop of space? Yeah. <laughs> Where it would, be, it would be nice. It would solve the problems of electric vehicles if you could take a hyperloop. And then for things that are too far for hyperloop, you'd take a spaceship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely don't think that this ties into the funding uh, for the system. It's definitely a pie-in-the-sky dream. I think it's more impractical than uh, building a base on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> this, 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 this idea has been floating around um, 
since since I was a kid, uh, I, I remember watching. Uh, there was a program on uh, on, uh, on the BBC called Tomorrow's World, and it was Alan Bond uh, building a spacecraft to do exactly the same as Elon Musk is proposing, uh, and that that spacecraft has become Skylon, which of course we're. Uh, the reaction engines are developing in this country, and I actually think that that's probably got more of a chance to um, to, to sort of fulfil this potential, just purely because of the air-breathing engines could actually go on a on a sort of more conventional aircraft. But but still, I, it it, it <laughs> this has been something that's been talked about since I was a boy, and hasn't happened. <laughs> I haven't heard the name Skylon in a while. Um, Let's, let's it's just talk. got it's just got DARPA funding, Skylon. I think that was announced at the IAC. So, yeah. Okay. Um. One last technical thing I'd like to talk about is the proposed method of orbital refueling. Um. So this was announced last year. Um. That they would uh, the spaceships would refuel. Last year they were shown like back to back through like a docking port or something. Um, this year it seems like they put a little bit more thought into it um, and you know the intent was the way they showed it was they would go engines to engines like um, backed up to, against each other and use the same um, lines that they would use to fill the tanks um, to transfer fuel from one tank to another so I guess the lines would just like um, be able to flip directions on the flow um, and they would go up engines to engines and just transfer all the fuel or, you know, a certain amount. Um, and one thing that surprised me, and we were talking about this when we were watching it together, uh, at TJ and me, was that I was under the impression last year that you, to send, to top off the tanks of a spaceship, you would just have to send one other tanker and then, like, all that fuel would go into the one that was carrying passengers. Um, what they showed is, you know, it could take up to five, um, I think was the number, maybe five or six um, tankers to each go up, dump a little bit of fuel, um, rinse and repeat until the tanks are topped off um, in orbit um, before the spaceship continu continues on its way. TJ, can you explain, like, you, you explained this to me, I, I still don't quite understand it, but like what... Is that because, like, of the mass that you have to launch the fuel into orbit, and then you have to use some of that fuel to do the launch, etc.? Um, and is that like feasible? So there was a, um, a you know a very interesting slide in the talk that shows the delta v remaining um, when you get a certain amount of payload to low Earth orbit, and so it shows that if you want 150 tons of payload, so that includes that 85 ton vehicle and then 150 extra tons. Uh, you need to use the entire fuel tanks to get you in a low-Earth orbit. Uh, if you have a specialty uh, tanker version that takes up 150 tons of fuel, then you need, you know, let me look at the actual numbers for the fuel tanks for this BFR. You know, you need 100 or 860 tons of liquid oxygen and 240 tons of methane, right? So you need about... A thousand, I think it's about 1,100 tons of fuel. And so if you're going, uh, loading up 150 tons per flight, then you're going to need a lot of flights mm -hmm. to fully refuel the entire uh, spaceship in orbit. Uh, now, 
there might be some uh, ways around that. Uh, if you're only launching with fuel, you can redesign the ship, uh, make the tanks the entire width, uh, and you know save some dry mass. But you know that's just how the the math works out right now with the numbers we get. Like you're gonna need multiple flights to do that. Uh, I think it's really interesting. Uh, the the method of which they're using is very simple, in that they you know use reaction control thrusters. They they dock each ship end to end. And in the renders, they have very large propellant feed lines. They're very apparent uh, in the back engine half. M m uh, mate those together. One vehicle, you know, accelerates with their reaction control thrusters, and the fuel just literally falls down through the pipes into the other the other vehicle. Uh, which, you know, there's no fiscal reason that would not work. Um, and currently, in, for something on this scale, when you're moving that much propellant, uh, it's really the only way to make things work. Because um, you're going to need some kind of positive pressure and either some kind of pump or just gravity, like a gravity or acceleration based kind of flow. Uh, currently, you know, when Progress goes up to refuel the International Space Station, uh, they use these compressed bladder tanks. So they'll have a, a metal cylinder and then some kind of, uh, you know, synthetic bladder that lines the inside, and then they can constrict that or compress that bladder to force fuel out of the tank. Um, but that does not scale that well, right? When you're talking about tanks that are nine meters in diameter, uh, it's really hard to set up a bladder system to do that. So I, you know, I, I don't see any issues with orbital refueling. And the, the one big gotcha is like, okay, how are you gonna dock two massive spacecraft together accurately? And it's like, well, They've already developed that technology for Dragon 1. They're going to implement that fully with Dragon 2. Uh, and the principles are exactly the same. You know, orbital rendezvous and do autonomous docking is a solved problem. Progress has been doing it for decades. Uh, like, it's not something that is uh, inherently impossible. The, the docking bit seems easy. I mean, I, I, that sounds like it would be something that, yeah, they've been doing for ages. But the thing that springs to my mind is all that energy that you're using just to get fuel. You're using fuel to get fuel up into up into the low Earth orbit to do this to do this transfer. It, why isn't it there a big push to do this at the moon, where you make the methane and you can't uh, make methane on the moon? Bottom line, there's no carbon on the moon. Or not useful can we not, Well, we can do we, we can do hydrogen and oxygen though, can't we? We could, there's water on yeah. the moon, so why not why not start making rocket fuel on the moon? That's going to be surely a much. So the issue, so there you know there was a, a demo uh, for a no ISRU based moon mission uh, where they boost a BFR spaceship to a highly elliptical orbit. So they put a lot of extra energy into it, and then they refill it with tankers while it's in that orbit. And then it leaves highly elliptical orbit to go to the moon, land propulsively, drop useful cargo, and then come back. On the moon, like you have to understand that the it takes a large amount of delta v to get to the moon, and while the moon is has one sixth the gravity of, of Earth, it is still a, a a gravity well you have to work yourself out of. And so, if you can solely produce all the fuel that you're going to use. Uh, from the moon, then it becomes a a realistic or viable option, right? To send to send ships, have them fully refuel, and then launch from the moon. But with this architecture, this is a, a methane uh, oxygen arch architecture. You can't make methane on the moon. Mm. Like it just doesn't have the materials. 
Uh, and so if you, you know, wanted to bring fuel to the moon, like build a storage depot and refuel there and then land and refuel and launch off, you're just encountering gravity losses of going down and up in the moon's gravity well. Uh, and with liquid, liquid hydrogen, yes, it's more efficient, uh, but it's much harder to store. And, you know, we don't have a lot of details on the carbon fiber tanks that BFR uses. Uh, it, it might turn out that they can't store liquid hydrogen. That is a very hard challenge to undertake. Yeah, the idea is that, you know, if you look at the cost of liquid methane and liquid oxygen right now, even with a 5,400 ton vehicle, you're, you're looking at less than a million dollars in fuel, right? This, like, if you can fully reuse everything and you can amortize the maintenance cost, you're looking at unbelievably low launch price uh, per, per kilogram. Uh, and so if, you're if it takes you $500,000 or a million dollars to launch 150 tons of fuel into orbit, then you, know, you can do 10, launch 10 fueling launches, that's $10 million in fuel. Uh, and then the initial launch was another million. So for $11 million, you can get a BFR spaceship with 150 tons, fully fueled, ready to go to Mars. Uh, which is unheard of today, right? You know, even our, our largest rockets that can send a few tons to Mars are $300, 400000000 million. So it is really that order of magnitude of if everything's fully reusable and everything can last long enough. And you can launch quickly and with subsequent, subsequent flights because I don't think a refueling operation would be even, you know, considered if it took even a couple months between launches. I think that's critical, is launch rate. And all these are, are part of the BFR architecture, but, you know, so far it's just been proposed with the exception of things like Raptor and um, the development on carbon fiber tanks. So like a lot of these impinge on the whole system coming together, um, which is something we don't have yet. You know, I. <laughs> I hate to, to make these predictions and say all these things that are, you know, it, it seems like they all stack up on top of one another. And when you take one piece out, some of the arguments start to fall apart. Yeah, that I mean, that for me, I look at something like Crew Dragon and the fact that that's behind schedule. And that's the, that's the one contract that's really paying for SpaceX. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's his cash cow. There should be all the efforts, presumably, have been going into that, and it's massively behind schedule. Same with, same with Falcon Heavy, and you think, well, the reason Crew Dragon's behind schedule is that NASA was not funded, and so they had to delay it and defer milestones. So that's really not Boeing or Crew Dragon or SpaceX's fault. Uh, that's that's more of a political inconsistent funding uh, situation for a lot of the early years of. Crew, uh, commercial crew development, they weren't hitting their milestones. And so they've, oh, it's only been the last two years uh, they've had consistent milestones and made consistent progress. That's really interesting. But, I mean, surely, these, surely those kind of issues will still crop up. You know, Elon Musk can't do this completely in a vacuum. Yeah. I think there's a, a good transition point to go to, like, how are they going to pay for mm -hmm. this? Uh, because you know we made some predictions, whether it was Starlink uh, launching their own satellite constellation or partnering with NASA for a development contract. Um, and 
Elon even tweeted this out. It's like the main problem with my talk was that we didn't have a real funding source. They didn't mention any of those and, things. It, and they didn't mention NASA. They didn't mention satellites. I'm not. I'm not satisfied with his answer because what it boils down to is that we're going to, you know, reach maturity with Dragon, with Dragon Two and Falcon Nine, and uh, Falcon Heavy. We're going to shutter or minimize production. Uh, down to just second stages because those are the only expendable parts. Uh, we're going to stop, you know, refurbish dragons, but stop producing them. And we're going to switch all of our development engineering and manufacturing engineering workforce over to BFR. That's like, okay. And, but if you look at the initial cost estimate uh, for ITS, which was $10 billion over 10 years, uh, with this system, uh, yeah, they're not going to be pushing Raptor as far yeah, they're not going to be pushing the tank diameter as far. It's still going to be multiple billions of dollars. You know, we don't. I don't have a number, but I would assume it's a, a significant fraction of ten billion. And if SpaceX actually gave us numbers uh, at ITS, the ITS talk, and uh, since then, uh, they had roughly, you know, if they can shift everything off Falcon Nine, they can get to a hundred plus million dollars a year of R&D funds into this project. And unless that number has dramatically changed, if you know, unless SpaceX finds a huge new profit source, you know, that's not a lot of money when you're going against a 10 million or 10 billion dollar goal. Uh, and so I really would have liked to see numbers. And there was one slide that showed cost to orbit uh, that compared, you know, ITS versus Saturn 5 and it had a scale of $1 sign to $3 signs. So like that's that's not the kind of cost number uh, that really satisfies me. And you know, at last year at ISC, we got this mythical two hundred thousand dollars per ticket yeah. number. We didn't get any of those numbers for the actual cost. We didn't get any, you know, cost I mean, per kilogram. It's smart on their part um, because you know you can't commit to a price before you fully understand what the price is going to be. But what what is what I don't understand, and maybe you guys can all help me understand this is like Elon said at the very beginning you know the problem with the last talk is that we didn't figure it out now we figured it out um but the way he explained it was that you know this BFR would take the um it would cannibalize their own fleet of, of vehicles because um, it would be you know it in air quotes you know cheaper and have more capability than everything else they could already provide um so it could do everything so then all you need to do is build and launch this one rocket, and I guess it has launch uh, cheap mass per kilogram, or dollars per kilogram to launch. Okay, I understand that part. But what I don't understand is, like, the development costs here. Are, does he mean if we don't have to put spend money on our other vehicles, then all the money we're making currently can be spent on BFR? And, like, that assumes that they still get contracts. Um, you know, he... He said they'll have a standing fleet of Falcon 9s during the development of BFR. Does that mean the money they receive, um, or the, the profits, I guess, that they receive from those Falcon 9 launches will 100% be put in to BFR, kind of like, you know, non-profit style? Or, or am I missing something here? I, I, I don't even understand that. That, that, that was my happen, assumption, but. was that the money was going to 
go in there, but you're absolutely right. I don't think the math will, will add up. That's, that's a huge development cost to build a brand new rocket system and infrastructure. Now, one reason why he might have been a little bit quiet, and this is something that um, I heard from Eric Berger, he's the um, space reporter over at Ars Technica, is the Air Force is soliciting um, ideas for a new launch system. Um, so there is this possibility that Elon can sell the BFR to the Air Force and get maybe partial development funding if the Air Force is interested in having heavy lift capability or something like this. So th there, there's some other options out there for him to kind of mitigate this developmental cost, but I don't think the market is there for heavy another heavy lift um, capable rocket. I, I think the market is going to be flooded and, and it goes against the trend of, of current satellites and payloads that are going to orbit. They're not getting bigger, they're getting smaller. Um, so I don't know how this is, how, how the financials are going to work out, but you know, I, I would hope that someone at SpaceX does, um, but, but it does raise some very interesting questions. Interesting you mentioned the Air Force. Sorry, one, one quick thing. No mention of NASA. Last year, um, Elon hinted at maybe another private-public partnership, um, the likes of which are, are funding Crew Dragon, um, and, you know, gave life to Falcon 9 and Cargo Dragon. Um, he didn't, that wasn't mentioned at all, which means, you know, they're not leaning on that. Mm -hmm. or, or they haven't had the conversation yet, you know. True. So, yeah, so maybe they're looking at Air Force and stuff, but uh, that certainly wasn't yeah. highlighted. Yeah, uh, going off what Brent said now, there are, there actually are like a kind of a split paradigm with payloads in that the largest payloads are getting larger and the smallest payloads are getting smaller. Right? If you look at GeoComSats, they're trending upwards five, six uh, metric tons, but there's tons and tons of, of small sats, tons and tons of CubeSats. Um, and BFR, like, you know, they suggested that with for science payloads, you can launch uh, a nine meter uh, diameter space telescope, um, which would be great, but NASA, you know, has been chugging along on its most recent telescope that just got delayed again. Um, I don't see, you know, a, launching one of those every year. And, you could, you know, if they're launching 30 Falcon 9s and they want to shift over a good chunk of those onto BFR, like, there's not, they're not going to be 30 large payloads. So I see there's, there has to be a, like, a huge paradigm shift in the market where you're going to have to go and, you know, commsats are going to have to go jump from six, you know, six metric tons to 60 metric tons or higher, which is, is mind boggling. Uh, but or, or something, something else has to has to change. Right. Maybe they you know start stacking five, 10 commsats in one launch. But again, there's not that many commsats that launch every year. And to mention the competition with things like New Glenn. Yeah, there's, there's already heavy lift out there. BF, BFR would beat New Glenn on cost to cost per kilogram because New Glenn is not fully reusable. It's partially reusable. So, and BFR can't fly without being fully reusable. So, like, it could compete, but it's it's much larger than New Glenn is. Um, so it's it's really interesting to find you know where the, how they're gonna work with the payloads. Now, I think another thing that's important to realize is that. Last year, you know, there was very, as Phil mentioned, very specific prods at NASA. Hey, we want to use Michoud. We want to use your facilities. Uh, this year, you know, SpaceX is like, hey, NASA, you pay us for these capabilities. This rocket will do those capabilities for you. 
We also, you know, you guys are interested in a moon base or a deep space gateway. A BFR could launch modules for a deep space gateway at one-tenth the cost of SLS, right? Or uh, there's been rumors that NASA is working on a request for proposals for a commercial cargo contract to the lunar surface, right? If we heard that all the way in January where Blue Origin uh, was circulating a white paper, hey, NASA, we should, you should do this kind of con contract or competition for us. Uh, and it looked, you know, SpaceX with all those renderings of a moon base, like, hey, our vehicle can do that too. And so I still think, you know, SpaceX is advertising that. In the ISS, by the way. What was that? There was a rendering of uh, the BFR spaceship docked to the International Space Station, which is interesting because that puts, um, interesting when, in terms of timeline, uh, but also shows that SpaceX is like, you know, hey, NASA, we, we still want to support you with all your missions. Yeah, and, you know, the unfortunate part is that there's there's no announcement of a commitment, which is understandable, right? This is a, a new, this is the announcement of the, the system. But, you know, unless we hear either the Air Force jumping in or NASA jumping in, like, we're left with this, this promise that we're going to invest all of our R&D efforts into this until it's done, which, okay, that's that's hundreds of millions of dollars going to a Mars rocket, which is great, uh, but that doesn't bode a lot of confidence in your timeline. So, I think we're going to need another big announcement uh, to make this timeline, this five seven year timeline, uh, a reality. Wait 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 wait, didn't Gwen Shotwell, president of SpaceX, give a talk? She gave a talk at MIT this week as well. I remember her mentioning. Uh, the satellite constellation. She she mentioned Starlink. But did she say that? Uh, but, like, did she connect the dots here for us? So the uh, the it was a closed talk at MIT. But uh, from tweets coming out of that, uh, she was semi quoted as saying, "We want to build a Earth Internet constellation to generate a ton of revenue to shovel into our Mars rocket, and then to eventually build that same constellation on Mars, right? Which is what we've heard." you know, around this, this, uh, constellation idea. However, there was no announcement of that at the talk, not a single word, not even a rendering. And the first test satellite is la theoretically launching late this year. And they want to start launching production satellites in 2019. And we didn't get anything from that. I, I can weigh in on that, that the the way that they're getting the approval for that is super hush hush and super secret and super competitive so there's already a company out there that wants to do the same thing that will be launching sooner than spacex and that's that's one web um, and they're building a satellite manufacturing facility right across from blue origins new glenn facility um, and when i went to go speak with those folks over there um, they did not say the words SpaceX. <laughs> um, they did not want to kind of get themselves in any legal trouble um, because they're they're actively vying for this this FCC license to operate this thing, and it's it's super competitive, super secretive. But whoever wins this out is the one who is going to make all the money on this this broadband constellation. So I can see legally why they did not want to say anything. Um, but it's, it's quite interesting, this fight between these constellation um, operators. And, and, and what, are, what are some of the legal ramifications, though? Like, if you, they, they say they want to do it, what's the problem with saying, um, giving details? There's a lot of other issues. Um, well, we could probably go into, like, in another time. Okay. But 
yeah, you could have a whole conversation yeah. about this. Um, I, I know that they, they just did not want to talk about the the approval process because it was still ongoing and, you know, there's proprietary information and what bandwidth they're operating on. and um, You can read all the technical proposals. Yeah. They're very fun. <laughs> I'm sure they're they are. They're publicly available. <laughs> but um, I mean, just talking about rides, you know, because OneWeb has, it's, it's a constellation of like hundreds of satellites and they're contracting out rides from everybody else. And someone asks, where well, are you going to contract from SpaceX? And they're like, well, no, <laughs> they're our competition. Um, so it, it, it's quite interesting, the whole kind of politics of satellites. Yeah, and uh, one last comment on OneWeb. Uh, SpaceX and OneWeb, a very long time ago, had a mutual partnership where SpaceX would launch their, their satellites, OneWeb would put up the Constellation, and SpaceX uh, wasn't satisfied with the level of coverage and performance that OneWeb was doing. So they decided to scale up the Constellation by a, almost a factor of 10 and do it themselves. And so not only are they direct competitors, they used their, you know, burn partners. And so there's, there, I think there's more bad blood between those two companies, not, you know, from the individuals, but from a company perspective than even with Blue Origin. Uh, because as you said, like the way the rules are written right now, only one, only one can survive. It's a Highlander problem, and uh, you know SpaceX uh, just—it wasn't a defeat, but like their fate was unknown. In that the FCC is passing the buck for regulation over to the ITU, uh, and so it's up to the ITU to make a decision whether both constellations can exist. And there's still a ton of challenges uh, to get this done. And uh, SpaceX is not sitting around waiting for approval. Like they have a whole office. In Washington, they have hundreds of engineers working on this. Like they are, they are working just as hard as uh, OneWeb is. Uh, but it look there is potential for one of them to get cut completely out. Yeah, and, and I don't, I don't think OneWeb satellites has a, uh, a contingency plan at this point. They are, they are steadfast on building that manufacturing plant and launching on New Glenn and launching on Virgin Orbital or whatever they are today. Um, that it, it, it someone's gonna, someone's going to get hurt, and uh, it, it's an interesting thing to see. Alrighty, Phil, you got any other uh, topics you want to cover? Um, we probably missed some stuff, but um, this has been a good, detailed conversation. I'm, I'm happy with where, where it's gone. Um, are, are there any other uh, concerns or, or um, you know, exciting things that we forgot to mention? We covered the form factor differences. We got a rendering of a Mars city. That was cool. <laughs> that was uh, one that thing was... that we didn't get from ITS uh, talk. We just got the landing and then barren Mars. Like they they had either some intern or some three D artist, you know, model some th- theoretical uh, Mars, you know, habitat domes. And... I could do that in SimCity. So <laughs> I don't know if you played the game Factorio. Uh, don't if you want to be a productive member of society. It's amazing, but it looks just like a, a screenshot from Factorio, where you're you know you start with a little base and you just grow out and grow out and you you know take in more resources and whatnot. Uh, so that's cool, you know. But that's more on the you know the fanciful. Here's this idea to strive for than an actual engineering. Like okay, this is where our habitat's going to be and this is our our Mars base plan. Uh, I, I'm calling it now that. That last slide of, of the Mars city um, is 100% going to be a mural somewhere in SpaceX HQ. Guarantee it. 
we kind of touched on it, but we also got a rendering of BFR on the moon and setting up a moon base. With the crane coming out. And, oh, one thing we forgot to talk about. Oh, two things. Two things. Okay, first off. Solar arrays? Solar yeah. panels. <laughs> solar, solar arrays. arrays. All right. I, I had a whole prediction that the solar is going to do change, and they weren't. And they're not even included in the CAD in model the cutaway, of the cutaway, they don't spaceship. show where the solar arrays go. And then in... They just come out of this tiny little box. It's like, where do they fit? How do they fold? Like, it's ridiculous. And I was talking um, with the guys over at We Martians on Twitter because uh, they had the the picture of BFR docked with the ISS. And it's like, okay, well, first off, like the station's probably not gonna be able to like rotate correctly with that much extra mass. And second of all, that spaceship needs a ton of power for it to run and for it to keep itself cool. But if it deploys its solar rays, they're going to hit the space station solar rays. Just like, oh my gosh, the solar rays. How do they work? Nobody knows. Hey, don't worry about it, dude. Don't worry about it. Details, details. Yeah, and, and they're like, there's no radiators on it either. It's like, I'm very confused. Um, also, two other things. There's the solar panels, there's the landing legs that people were very upset in. The design changes in between renderings. Uh, and they look very small because uh, the ITS had very big triangular feeted uh, landing legs that looked properly sized. And the new I the new BFR landing legs are very tiny. So some people have uh, been upset about that. Um, and the last thing was we got a render of BFR landing on Mars that looked like it was generated in the 80s. Like pure wireframe. <laughs> now, like, like you, you hired a company to make a beautiful rendering for the point-to-point -point Earth uh, mission set, but not no. for the landing on Mars. No, mission I will. Set. I will argue with you here. That is freaking awesome. You know why? Because that looks like it's straight off some engineer's desktop, and they're spending you know, however many hours a week working on it. And Elon's like, "Dude, we gotta put this in the talk. This is awesome." And he goes, "Okay," and sent, you know, fires up OBS takes a video of a screenshot of his computer and sends it over. I think that's freaking awesome, dude. Like, I try, I, I believe that. I put more faith in that than I ever would in an artistic rendering. Because in artistic renderings, it's a movie, you know? But it gives it some... I don't know. It, it makes the engineer in me very excited. It was pretty cool. As, as a non-engineer, I enjoyed watching it, so... Just because it did look like it was from the 80s. <laughs> yeah. It's like flying through a tunnel. And and the oh. little rings, the like the flight path wonderful. rings that it flew through when it approached the landing. Oh, it's like Star God. Fox. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I thought it was cool. So there you go. The two non-technical people here think it was awesome. So <laughs> I thought it was awesome too. I mean, <laughs> Phil and I, have, we have like our live reactions. It's like an hour and a half. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, TJ. TJ got a little. Uh, I was a little too excited when when they showed the renderings. It was, I got uncomfortable, <laughs> to be honest. It was it was a time. All right, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot for for coming here. We're uh, all across the world, lots of different time zones. Um, hopefully, I don't sound too groggy. I mean, it's I woke up at eight o'clock this morning. Um, you guys are probably you know mid afternoon. Uh, so I really appreciate it. taking the time out of your day. Um, Matt, you're from the Interplanetary Podcast. You want to talk about your show a little bit and, and what people can uh, expect if they they tune in and subscribe uh, to your podcast yeah <laughs> well I, I, the, 
I like everyone else's podcast because you're you're a hell of a lot more technical than we are. We, but we 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 like to have a little bit of fun on the podcast. It's weekly, and next week we'll be going to Eztech. So you get a kind of more European version than the other podcasts. I think most of most of the rest of you are either Canadian or American. <laughs> so you get you get uh, our nice English voices and our uh, and our sometimes comical American accents. <laughs> Yeah, you, it's really fun to listen to. Um, I personally enjoy the, the. Um, I mean, it's kind of casual. I love the casual conversation, and um, you do uh, occasionally feature uh, an astronaut, right? You do an astronaut of the month. Yep. Yeah. So that, that's always. And, fun. and we get we get um, the odd good, really good guest on as well, which is, uh, which is fun. We should. Yeah. Uh, your most recent episode, uh, Robert yep, Zubin. Yeah, yeah, and uh, hopefully we'll get a couple of astronauts while we're over at S Tech, so that should be fun. I'll, I'm subscribed. Um, I, I listen to it. Uh, when I get my morning coffee oh, as well, I go to work. Thanks so. very much. Well, I listen to all, I listen to all the other podcasters, including yourself, and uh, steal all your uh, technical ideas. <laughs> I need <laughs> I need to get my information from no somewhere. Worries. Jamie's no hope, you know. <laughs> Speaking of listening to other podcasts, um, so I I do envy the production value of Are We There Yet, uh, which is your podcast, Brendan. Do you want? Plug yours a little bit? Sure. Um, my podcast is a uh, production of WMFE Public Radio here in Central Florida. Um, we kind of take a broad look at human space exploration. Um, and again, not as technical as this podcast, but we try to have fun as well. Um, coming up, we have this week, we're going to be talking to Miriam Kramer from Mashable um, about her kind of reaction to uh, to this um, news from Elon. And then next week... I'm going up on Sophia, which is the stratosphere. You're going on it, I'm dude. I'm going on Sophia on Tuesday night. Oh um, man! So we'll have. I'm a, so excited. <laughs> me too. My wife's not too excited because I'm not going to be here to take care of the dogs. But uh, <laughs> I'll be up in the stratosphere checking out um, the moon of Neptune with these scientists, and we're going to do a podcast oh uh, after that. So um, that's freaking awesome. For yeah. those who don't know, Sophia is an observatory inside an airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's an infrared observatory. Yeah. So yeah, you fly the telescope out of the atmosphere, so you don't have to deal with the atmosphere screwing up your measurements. Yeah. So that should be a fun, a fun episode. So I, I get to to kind of do some fun stuff since I live so close to the space coast and with my job. So to be able to get listeners there with me is is kind of my goal. So. I'll be there for 10 hours, so it'll be a, a very long podcast episode <laughs> or a long editing process, but uh, but that, that one's one to look forward to, so I'm excited about that. Great. All right, guys, thanks again. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time for another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and questions for this episode. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at RITSpecs, and via email at specscast.com. Likewise, you can get in touch with our guests on Twitter. Uh, Do you guys, where where can you be found on the internet? I'm on Twitter at spacebrendan or wmfe.org slash are we there yet? And the best place to find us is www.interplanetary.org.uk or interplanetypod on Twitter. But if you just put in interplanetary podcast into into Google, you should be okay. Yeah, and you can subscribe to um, all three of these podcasts on iTunes um, or pretty much anywhere else that you can find podcasts. Um, and we all cover different uh, aspects. There are a lot of more space podcasts as well. Um, and we're all very active 
on the internet, always talking to each other and to our listeners. So it's a really great community and uh, we encourage all of you to also get involved. So thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much.